This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. This is our regular segment with John Pucci, who is an attorney, a former head of the United States Attorney's Office in Springfield, which is the office for Western Massachusetts, now a partner at Buckley Richardson Regional Law Firm here in Western Massachusetts. John, I really appreciate your being with us this morning, and I'd like to start with the question that has really been gnawing at me and that I'd love to have some clarification on, and that is, after Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony before the January 6th committee, the select committee investigating the insurrection of January 6th, what are the odds that Donald Trump will be indicted? And if so, if you believe he is likely, or at least there is a strong possibility that will he, he will be indicted, what will, be, what will he be indicted for? Well, my own opinion is that um, he will be indicted. Um, so of course, I don't have, I'm not privy to Department of Justice thinking on this or committee, this is the committee of uh, uh, January 6th thinking, which doesn't has a power, have the power to indict, of course, but. Right. The January 6th committee only has the power to make a referral to the Department right. of Justice. Right. But it is important to note that the January 6th committee and particularly, uh, the Cheney, um, wing of that committee um, is very firm at this point that, that that he has committed crimes they're withhold and, and for which he can and can be indicted and I think independent of the committee hearings Cheney has said he should be indicted um, that's only a referral to the Department of Justice but it will add pressure I think when that referral is made and I do think he will be indicted I think there's a there's Looking back at it through the prism of my life as a federal prosecutor and trying to think about would I indict this case um, based only on what I know from public from the public information, uh, it's definitely indictable and it's a winnable case. You, as a federal prosecutor, you would never indict a case you do not believe you can win. There's no such thing as indicting a loser. Uh, the conviction rate in federal court uh, is 95 percent convictions in federal criminal cases brought. Um, and this case has all the earmarks of a successful federal prosecution. It's not without its obstacles, for sure, that are unique in all of my lifetime. I've been practicing federal criminal law for 40 years, 10 years as a prosecutor, 30 years as a defense attorney. It is a unique prosecution. There are unique issues with it in considerations, but I think that uh, there's sufficient evidence, more than sufficient evidence to indict and convict. And I think ultimately the Department of Justice will do that. And I think that they are on that road now, although it's masked by the fact that they proceed under federal grand jury rule 6E, which is requires total, almost total secrecy as to their proceedings. Uh, it, the earmarks of a coming prosecution of Trump uh, seem clear to me. Um, and, and, I, and, and I will get to what the crimes will be, but let me say that most importantly, most significantly to me, an earmark of where they're headed is that they recently got search warrants to seize the uh, cell phone data, the, the devices that held the cell phone data from uh, a witness named Clark, 
who was uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was who Trump wanted to appoint attorney general in a coup at the Department of Justice in the in the in the electronic device of John Eastman, uh, Dr. Eastman, as he calls himself. Uh, and to get those warrants, they had to apply to a federal judge had to make an independent determination that there was probable cause of evidence of federal crimes in those devices and uh, in those determinations that authorized the search warrants. So they've already been to court, albeit under the cloak of grand jury secrecy, to seek and get search warrants, averring that they have proof of evidence of federal crimes and that the evidence is in those, those devices that they got authority to seize. And that, to me, is a very clear sign of that they, they believe they have the evidence an independent judge has reviewed both of those search warrants and found that they're valid exercises of uh, prosecutorial authority. And I think that's where they're headed. Um, as to your question, what are the crimes? Yes. So there are two crimes. Um, there are actually three crimes, but there are two crimes with clarity that I think um, jump out at me. One is there is a statute 18 usc united states code section 1512 and if you're interested in the minutiae subsection c2 which makes it a violation of federal law to uh, interfere with a an official proceeding and an official proceeding in this case was the counting of the of the um uh, that trump was doing i'm sorry that uh pence was doing uh, at the time of the insurrection, the counting of the, the, the votes, um, which, which um, under the Constitution is delegated directly to the vice president. And so Trump's involvement in the insurrection, in stirring it up, in, uh, in, 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 in ginning up all the forces of violence that were brought to, into play on January 6th at the time of the insurrection, uh, it, to me, is a clear violation uh, of an attempt to violate 18 U.S.C. 1512 uh, obstruction of an official proceeding. The other statute that jumps to mind is 18 U.S.C. Section 371, the general conspiracy uh, statute, um, and, and this, the theory there uh, set out uh, would be that there was an agreement to defraud the United States by interfering with the election certification process. So both of those statutes are in play. Um, it's interesting to note with regards to the first section 1512 that John Eastman has challenged the government's uh, um, uh, seizure of his um, uh, his uh, cell phone device with the electronic evidence in it, but he has conceded in that proceeding that the 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 counting of the delegate of the votes by Pence constituted an official proceeding within the meaning of that statute. So he's conceded that, and I don't think there can be any challenge to it. And then the question is, was there an obstruction and, and was Trump involved in ginning it up? And I think the evidence is pretty strong. Yes and yes. All right. Well, let me ask you this. The a crucial piece of evidence that came out of uh, Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony before the uh, January 6th committee was that Trump said, let the people in, forget the, uh, the magnetic devices that would have revealed if they had weapons on them, um, 
forget that. They're not here to hurt me. Just let them in so I can have a big crowd, and that's what will be shown on TV. Um, so, and from that, there is the inference that Trump knew his, those people, or many of them, uh, had weapons. Uh, and then he said, go down to the Capitol. Um, but there's a leap there of having to prove that Trump thought, believed, and was encouraging them to use the weapons. So how is that a layup for the government in this case? I don't think you'd even need weapons. If, if all these people had gone through magnetometers um, and they did not, so they did not have weapons when they approached the Capitol, that doesn't mean that what they did didn't, wasn't an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. So it helps, of course, and it gives a lot of uh, color to the issue of their intent to obstruct an official, an official proceeding when they arrive with weapons. And I don't mean just guns, but bats and flags that they used as weapons. And they did use. It wasn't in Kuwait. It wasn't that they brought them and didn't use them. They did use those weapons and that that, in fact, underscores the obstruction. But it isn't even necessary to make out the crime. So one crime you think that is possible to be indicted would be for interfering or obstructing an official proceeding. That is the counting of the Electoral College votes. The other crime that you see as being indictable is a conspiracy to defraud the United States under the general conspiracy statute. You have some thoughts with regard to seditious conspiracy, which is the other conspiracy that people have been talking about, a conspiracy to overthrow the United States government, a conspiracy meaning an agreement, not that you tried to, to, to do it necessarily, but an agreement to overthrow the United States government by force or violence? Uh, I think it's, it's in play. Uh, uh, I think I think it's a charge that could be brought. I think it's a little more complicated than um, the obstruction of an official proceeding, which was clearly his intent. Stop Pence. He issued public statements in this. Pence should not be counting. He shouldn't be counting. He should suspend the counting uh, and send it back to the state legislatures, et cetera, et cetera. So his uh, his his intention to overthrow the government is a little bit uh, slightly removed. It, it would be a prosecutorial decision you'd have to make whether to bring that charge or not. And it's a higher level, more specific requirement than obstruction of official proceeding, which he clearly wanted to do. Right. It does seem that uh, obstructing the official proceeding would be an easier charge for the government to try to prove. Right. L let me ask you this, because you said something really interesting before, and you've mentioned this on the show uh, uh, previously, and that is the conviction rate in federal court that prosecutors, the Department of Justice achieves. And you've used that 95% figure, uh, which is, I believe, the percentage of defendants who actually plead guilty. And then there's about 5% of the charges that actually go forward Trump to trial. Trump's obviously never pleading guilty to anything. And therefore, the uh, risks to the government of, a tr of trial are, well, you never know, you really never know what is going to happen. And I'm wondering how the Department of Justice uh, uh, conducts an appraisal of uh, this is win winnable as opposed to we have a really excellent chance of a conviction in this case because the go last thing the government wants to do here is to bring the charge and lose. Well, that's for sure. The conviction, 90%, the numbers are actually this. 
90% of people that get indicted in federal court plead guilty. 10% of them go to trial and five, half of those people get convicted. So if you put Trump in that 10% group that he's not gonna plead guilty, then statistically you can flip a coin as to whether or not he would get convicted or not. And, but that's just the data, uh, the broad thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of cases historically. You have to view these cases one by one. And of course, that's how you'd have to view this case. You'd have to put a, you know, put it all on paper, summarize all the evidence, and and use your common sense, which is does not go out the door in these matters, and uh, figure out what your chances of conviction are. And I think they're quite high. I With, think the overpowering evidence, and, and they're not by by no means, you know, are they over their investigation and what's happening? <coughs> we know. Um, is just a piece of what the evidence that actually would be brought to bear will be. We're speaking. And, and let me, yes, let me give you an example on that. So, for instance, this guy, Attorney Cipollini, Cipollone, was identified by Cassidy Hutchinson as a central and key player who warns Trump repeatedly about criminal, the criminal crimes that could be committed if he continued to incite the insurrectionists. If he Testif comes and testifies, that's enormously important to prove Trump's intent, that his own lawyer was telling him it's a crime if you do what you're planning to do. So we'll see what that is. Which raises the really interesting question, which is most people say, well, wait a second, isn't the conversation between a client and a lawyer privileged? And the answer to that is right, but there is an exception, and it's the future crimes exception to the attorney-client privilege, something we'll talk about on the other side of this break, along with where would this indictment be brought and how would you ever select a jury? We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. State Street Fruit Store. What the heck is a fruit store anyway? Well, State Street opened in Northampton in the 1920s as a fruit store, selling local fruit and other produce from the valley. And even though State Street has grown to be much more deli, wines, spirits, they are still a fruit store. And right now, State Street and their sister store, Cooper's Corner in Florence, are buried in berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, schnozberries. Okay, they don't have any schnozberries, but they've got every other kind of local berry going. State Street, Fruit Store, and Cooper's Corner have always offered produce picked by our Connecticut River Valley neighbors as soon as and as long as they're available. So come get fruit at a fruit store. Northampton has always been a fruity place. We are what we eat. State Street, Fruit Store in Northampton and Cooper's Corner in even fruitier Florence. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. 
No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not, and I have a furniture store, so I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you, Therapeutic. The best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci, former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Western Massachusetts, longtime federal prosecutor and longtime criminal defense attorney as well. Before the break, I raised the issue of the attorney-client privilege between Trump and his lawyer, uh, Cipollone, uh, and we were talking about that during the break, John. So bring our listeners in on that conversation, if you would, please. How can Trump's lawyer be subpoenaed to testify against Trump? Well, <clears throat> your framing of the question isn't the right framing because Cipollone is not Trump's lawyer. He's a, he's a lawyer to the office of the president of the United States of America, and that privilege passes from one president to the next. So it's Joe Biden who has the, the privilege uh, of exec, the executive privilege with regards to uh, information and matters that related to Trump when he was in office. And that issue, in fact, has already been litigated uh, when Trump challenged the production um, of records that had been submitted to the National Archives. He challenged their production to the January 6th Committee on Executive Privilege Grounds, and the courts threw that out because Joe Biden submitted a waiver of that privilege. He is the, he is the president. He owns the privilege historically going back and going forward until he leaves office. So that will not fly. Uh, really? Period. I mean, if it was privileged at the time they had the conversation, the privilege doesn't continue after he leaves office? The privilege continues with whoever succeeds him. The privilege belongs to the office. It's like a privilege that belongs to a company. It doesn't belong to the individual in the company who is seeking to invoke it. It's like the uh, season tickets to the Red Sox that we have here. If I leave, I will no longer have access to that. That's one, right. ana that's one analogy we could use. For the yes. layperson. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, well on, on that point, let's just move on. So then the <laughs> other thing is what you hinted at was the crime fraud exception. And there is a crime fraud exception. And in fact, it's been invoked and ruled upon with regards to Trump assertions of the attorney-client privilege as to Dr. Eastman's records, because they were subpoenaed originally, and Eastman raised privilege issue, executive privilege, and there's a very thoughtful and very informative opinion by a judge in Cal federal judge in California named Meta, 
which I recommend to anyone who wants to know about what's happening in the January 6th committee issues. And he concluded that there was sufficient evidence of crime fraud such that even if a privilege existed, the exception of crime fraud voided the privilege and requires the production of the documents. So he cannot, I don't believe he can successfully assert, and even this Supreme Court would be unlikely to, to, to sustain his objections to the production of witnesses and documents based on executive privilege. Let's go to the other question I raised before the break, which is where would this indictment be brought uh, and where would the trial take place? Uh, the indictment would br- be brought in either D.C. or Virginia, wherever the grand jury is sitting. I think you can bring it in either place. Um, you might want to bring it in D.C., where the jury is likely to be more diverse uh, and and um, perhaps less, uh, shall we say, from a strategic perspective, less uh, reachable by uh, the MAGA crowd. I don't know that for sure. That's just a, a gut reaction. I don't think you make a choice on venue uh, lightly. I think if you have a choice, you have to weigh who's going to be in the jury pool and who's more likely to uh, convict or uh, approach this uh, from your own perspective, the government's perspective. And so I think it's probably D.C. And I think the jury pool in D.C. is, you know, leans left for sure. Uh, and is has a lot of diversity in it, and I would be thinking that's a more favorable jury pool to be trying to draw on for the actual petite jury that would sit on the case. Right, and one of the things that would happen during that litigation is Trump moves for a change of venue, for sure. Uh, in addition, raising the issue, uh, where in this country could you pick a jury of 12 seating jurors, probably another six anyway as alternates, to say, oh, I have no opinion. I can be fair and impartial. I haven't formed an opinion with regard to Donald Trump. Where are you going to find 18 people, 12 who will sit as jurors, to say that? I suggest we move it to Moscow. <laughs> Look, that question is often raised in mega cases. You know, where could you ever find a jury to 12 people who don't have an opinion about Donald Trump? Well, it may not be in my world or your world or Monty's world, um, but there is a world of people. There are a world of people out there who really, you know, are are apolitical and have have not necessarily unplugged, but have just never plugged into it. And you may well, you you have to find it. It could be, I had a very large case in, in highly, highly publicized case of police corruption I did uh, years ago in Philadelphia, that was widely publicized, and the jury pool was chosen from the four, the eastern counties of Pennsylvania. And we started the day of picking the first jury with 600 jurors, potential jurors, sitting in a gigantic auditorium, and worked our way through. That case is minuscule compared to the case against Donald Trump. So maybe you start with a group of 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000, but you just keep searching until you legitimately get 12 people plus alternates. You'd need more, probably twice as many for alternates in this kind of case uh, who would substitute if one of the jurors got ill. It would be a long trial, but you'd end up sifting through and I believe you'd find 12 jurors plus alternates. I think it just would happen. So it would be arduous. It would be unprecedented. It would be of enormous scope and difficulty. But, you know, otherwise you can't 
not charge a criminal case because of the difficulties in finding jurors, I don't think. That, that, that cannot be the American system. Final question for you today, John, if we, if we might. And that is related to the front page story in the New York Times this morning about prosecutors in Georgia who are going forward with their investigation. Can Trump be indicted both federally and on state crimes? And could those go forward at the same time? Um, that raises an interesting double jeopardy question. Uh, I think the crimes themselves would be different. Um, there would be state crimes and state activity in Georgia, which may not be part of a federal criminal uh, charges and so could be brought. If they were directly overlapping, they would be some vulnerability to a motion to dismiss uh, the state court charges as duplicative. Uh, on double jeopardy grounds uh, against Trump. But I'm not sure how that would turn out. It's very, very rare. There's probably very little law on it. How soon will all this happen? My last question for today. I think that um, it'll happen in this this calendar year. I think that it's going to be put up or shut up time for Garland this calendar year. Um, When the committee is finished, the referrals made, They're clearly already teamed up and are doing lots of work uh, behind the scenes on the federal grand jury uh, investigation. And I think it'll be this calendar year. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with John Pucci. Thanks so much for your time, John. Really appreciate it. We'll speak with you again soon. Take care. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. UMass Amherst is taking steps to enhance political engagement among students. UMass President Marty Meehan and the chancellors of several of the university's campuses have signed on to the All-In Campus Democracy Challenge, President's Commitment, which calls for 100% student voter registration and participation in all elections. More than 400 colleges and universities around the country have signed on to the commitment. Westfield residents who were transported by the fire department's ambulance may have been affected by a possible data breach. Comstar Ambulance Billing sent a letter to patients which says the company was the target of a cyber attack that happened on or around March 26th. Personal information potentially compromised includes patient names, dates of birth, social security numbers, health insurance information, and medical assessment information. The company is offering credit monitoring through Equifax to all possibly affected people. And the Northampton Department of Health and Human Services will be hosting a child passenger inspection event this Saturday from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Smith Vocational. The event is free of charge and is open to caregivers of children of all ages, including family members, friends, and anyone else who regularly transports children in their personal vehicle. In May, DHHS received a grant award from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Executive Office of Public Safety and Security to provide car seats to families in need at no cost. Touch of humidity this morning, but the trend will be for drier air and a mostly sunny sky. You'll notice the breeze out of the north-northwest, a high of 82 to 86 today. Then scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 52 to 58. For Thursday, it's a mixture of sun and clouds, chance for a late-day shower, a high of 78 to 82, rain likely tomorrow night. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
Organizaciones de asistencia social como Providence Ministries, Enlace de Familias y Nueva Esperanza están buscando el apoyo de la comunidad por medio de donaciones tanto monetarias como de suministros para asistir a las 25 personas que perdieron sus hogares y posesiones durante un incendio que ocurrió en la madrugada del viernes 1 de julio en el edificio ubicado en el 551 de la calle Southbridge, en el sur de Holyoke. El nivel de daño que causó el fuego a la estructura hizo que fuese necesaria la demolición completa del inmueble. En trabajo conjunto, estas organizaciones están recaudando fondos y suministros para las 25 personas desplazadas por el incendio. Las necesidades son múltiples. Comida, fórmula para bebés, pañales, ropa, calzado y productos de higiene personal, entre otros. Para quien pueda y desee donar y ayudar a estas familias afectadas por el incendio, pueden contactar a Jenny Rivera, concejal del Distrito 1, a Enlace de Familias, ubicado en el 299 de la Main Street. De igual forma, Nueva Esperanza y Providence Ministries se encuentran disponibles para recibir donativos. En otras informaciones, el Comité de la Cámara que investiga la insurrección del Capitolio realizará una audiencia pública el próximo martes para presentar evidencia relacionada con el ataque del 6 de enero de 2021. La audiencia está programada para el 12 de julio a las 10 de la mañana, según un comunicado. El comité retrasó una de sus audiencias la semana pasada para darle al panel más tiempo para prepararse y mientras continúa obteniendo más información. El comité del 6 de enero considera referencias criminales de Trump al Departamento de Justicia. Los miembros del comité de la Cámara dijeron esta semana que si bien no se ha tomado una decisión formal, podrían hacer referencias penales a los fiscales federales en función de sus hallazgos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Cool Films with Larry Hot. Larry Hot is a Florence-based, Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, and he is with us regularly, and I wanted him back as soon as we could after our conversation last week to continue the conversation we were having about the film you are now making, Larry, about the Niagara movement. So you had said something really interesting just before we came on the air, and I would appreciate it if you would share that with our listeners. Well, we've been talking about the Niagara movement film, which... Uh, takes place in roughly 1895 to 1910. What it's really about is the civil rights movement before the NAACP, and how the NAACP comes about. And it's relevant to what's going on today, oh, in so many, so many ways, because it's about race politics and how it, how it affects uh, us on the national level and how it affects the presidency. And so what, 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 let me interrupt for a second. What hmm. will the title, or what is the title of the film? Well, the title of the film is simply The Niagara Movement, A Mighty Current of Protest. And of course, Niagara Falls is a mighty current. And at the time uh, this all takes place, the power coming from Niagara Falls was new, electric power. And it was a symbol, it was a new world symbol, had been for several hundred years of the power and, and beauty, the sublime nature, God in nature, in America, in the new world. And then it shifts suddenly. First, a tourist area, uh, well known for honeymoons, people not sure why, but it's something about the sexual energy of the water. And then it becomes known as a source of power, right? And this is going to open up a new world to Americans and a new world of industry and, and enlightenment. And the Niagara movement as a movement, 
is named because of its proximity to Niagara Falls. Right. What happens basically is that W.E.B. Du Bois, along with this guy named William Monroe Trotter from Boston, two well-educated, Harvard-educated African-American scholars decide that they need a new movement, a new civil rights movement, in opposition to Booker T. Washington, who was known as an accommodationist, and some people just simply called him an Uncle Tom. And his philosophy, Booker T. Washington's philosophy, was we need to go along to get along. We don't want to make any waves. We don't want to get educated. We just want to have enough education so that we could read and write and work in the fields and be carpenters and plumbers and take our time. And Monroe Trotter and W.B. Du Bois eventually become horrified by this because there are so many depredations, lynchings, the Ku Klux Klan, discrimination. Uh, you know, we talk about Rosa Parks uh, in the 50s, but there were many, many other Rosa Parks cases going way back. You know, Plessy versus Ferguson, which we know is the, is, the, is the Supreme Court case that basically legitimized separate but equal, that is a Rosa Parks case. Plessy was a, a young man who refused to move to the back of the train. Now, it's a whole other story, which we might tell in the film, because it was all a setup. In fact, all of these cases... Yes, Rosa Parks Rosa Park did not one day decide not that she was not going to move. Rosa Park right. was a community organizer trained at the Highlander Center. She was this was uh, right. This and she and she was in she was in a long line of people. But one of the stories we tell in the film is about Barbara Pope. Barbara Pope actually did not plan this. Barbara Pope was a teacher in Washington DC, a well-off woman who was taking a vacation to Virginia and was asked to move to the back of the train and did not and got involved with a lawsuit, and the Niagara movement supported her. And that's an important story because they actually demonstrated that they could win. Uh, it's a long, complicated story, but eventually it leads to Brown versus Board of Education, which is one of the reasons why this is an important film. But this morning I wanted to talk to you about something a lot of people didn't know, don't know, I didn't know about it, but it's directly related to Niagara Falls, literally, and what we're talking about in terms of the presidency and race politics. And this is the story in a nutshell. Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. Why? Because McKinley is assassinated. Where? At the Pan American Exposition at Niagara Falls in 1901. And a few months later, he asks Booker T. to come to the White House for dinner. Booker T. Washington, the most famous African-American man in the country, and Teddy Roosevelt says, why don't you come to dinner at the White House? Now, nowadays, if a president was to ask a prominent African-American citizen or anybody of color to come to the White House, nobody would notice, right? It's just common. It's part of our daily politics. But at the time, listen to this is what, this is what some of the papers said. This is what the Memphis newspaper called. He called. They called it the most damnable outrage which has ever been perpetrated by any citizen of the United States. And a New Orleans paper asked, White men of the South, how do you like it? And a front-page poem in, the Missouri, in Missouri ended with a suggestion, cut off Teddy's head. Right? This is what black-white politics were like in 1901. So at the risk of asking a, a un, question uninformed by history, why did Teddy Roosevelt do this? Well, Teddy Roosevelt, remember, was a progressive and a trust buster. And he also wanted to keep the black vote where, where it was permissible. Remember, he's a Republican, and the African-Americans associated themselves with Lincoln, the Republican, who emancipated the slaves. So that's really what was going on here. But it wasn't enough, that kind of logic wasn't enough for her, to Petty Roosevelt's supporters 
particularly in the South, or anybody who was in favor of him, to countenance a black man in the White well, House. Well, it was a solid Democratic South at that point, right? because the Democrats were the party that right. had opposed and, Lincoln, and right. Lincoln and the Republicans were the party of freedom right. and And actually, I mentioned on the, on the, on the last, last week when I was on the show that the reason Booker T. Washington became the head of the Tuskegee Institute, which was just saying nothing at the time, he actually helped found it, was because before the end of Reconstruction, the Alabama government wanted the black Democratic, they wanted the votes, the blacks to vote for Democrats, so they thought by putting an African-American in charge of the school, it would be a sop. They would be throwing something to the black Democrats, and so they would vote for the Alabamians, for the, Repub- for the, for the Democratic Alabamians. Um, then, of course, when Reconstruction ends, and they just make it impossible for African-Americans to vote. Right. That's all. That is a story we're going to touch on in the film. But what I, the point I wanted to to make today, and sort of what's what's relevant to our current day politics, is the challenges that Booker T. Washington faced when Roosevelt turned on him. And this is what happened. There's three major incidents that occur after 1905, and the first one is the most important. It's called the Brownsville Incident. Have you ever heard of the Brownsville Incident? Probably no, not. I haven't. No. The Brownsville incident involved the Buffalo Soldiers, which you've probably heard of. Buffalo Soldiers uh, were African Americans who fought in the Civil War and, and afterwards. Actually, they were very heavily involved in fighting Native Americans in Montana. And at one point, they are brought to Brownsville, Texas to replace the white soldiers there who had been there for a few years. They're moving on, and they bring in a contingent of 167 African American soldiers to Brownsville, Texas. The townspeople do not want them there. And they protest, and, they, and the saloon owners don't want them there because they want only the white trade, and the white trade won't drink with the, if black people are drinking in their bars. And there's just rampant racism there. And one night, there is some kind of attack in the town, and one person is killed, a, a bartender is shot, a horse is shot out from somebody, bullet holes are all over the town, and nobody knows who did it, but they suspect it was angry black soldiers. They have a hearing, and not a single soldier will testify. And they get court-martialed. The case makes its way all the way up to Roosevelt, where he can pardon them. And he says, no, I'm not going to. The nation is up in arms about this, black, black and white, because these soldiers had served with Roosevelt. And San Juan Hill, they were decorated. They had congressional medals of honor. And they were dishonorably discharged from the service without their pensions. And many of them died penniless. But we don't know that in the story because it's taking place in 1906. But what happens is that Booker T. Washington loses all credibility in the African-American community. Not all, but a ton of it because his pal Roosevelt, who had him in the White House, dissed and dismissed, literally, these African-American soldiers. And this is a major turning point in civil rights history when the accommodationist shows that he has no power. And then what follows after this is a riot in Atlanta where many, many people are killed, and it's a riot over a false accusation of rape, which is the cause of many, many lynchings, right? And then I think the worst one, the one that really shocked a lot of people, was the Springfield riot, 1908. And why? why? Springfield, Springfield, Illinois. 
right? There are 13 Springfields in, in the United States. <laughs> we, we know this from the contest to see which Springfield would be the Simpsons Springfield. <laughs> but that's not what this is about. Springfield, Illinois, the home of Abraham Lincoln and where he had his office, right? It is a prominent African-American community, one of the wealthiest African-American communities in, in the country. And some say the money that was, being, that was going to the Niagara movement, a lot of it was coming from individuals who were from Springfield, like Clement Morgan, who was one of the allies of W.E.B. Du Bois. And there was some incident that sparked a riot, but basically it was an excuse for the white community to tear down their business competition. And they murdered 30 people, injured 200 others, and burned down the entire African-American section of Springfield, Illinois. And Booker T. Washington is helpless, cannot do anything about these riots, lynchings, burnings all over the country. And this is the atmosphere that the Niagara Movement is in. But at the same time, the Niagara Movement is unable to raise more money because they have decided they're not going to work directly with white people. And this is what gives rise to the NAACP because the movement collapses. But people say, we still need a movement. And the white supporters come back and say, we can do it but we're going to do it mostly without blacks on our board. That's what the without, crux, without. without, except for one, the one they most respect and who's the best writer, W.B. Du Bois, who they name the secretary. The title of the film and when we'll be able to see it? It's called The Niagara Movement, A Mighty Current of Protest. We are going to finish it this year. I, hell or, come high, hell or high water. Um, and it will be on PBS in 2023, sometime between the spring and the fall of 2023. We've been speaking with Emmy Award-winning Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hot, and we'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHM. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley Co-op. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co-workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton.
When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with Without unnecessary risk, Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday bread euphoria? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at WHMP.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Viacon Munoz with Natalia Munoz, who is joining us this morning off the air. We were talking, Natalia and Monty and Larry Hott and I were talking, and Natalia had a few choices. About how you're all wrong about Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> he, he was not progressive. I just want to set the no, record No, he was straight. a progressive. It's, a two, it's two different things. He okay. was a progressive. Larry, okay. you, want, you want to take 30 seconds? A, a, pro, a progressive, there was a progressive movement at the time. It was mostly about trust busting. It was also about working, oh, co- working conditions. It? it was were about vote, the vote it? for white w- women. Um, but when you were being a progressive didn't mean that you were pure and that you were not a misogynist or a racist. The progressive movement exactly. should not be, su- be said, confused with being a progressive. pretty much the way progressives are today. So. Okay, tell us how you really feel, Natalia. Stop <laughs> holding back. <laughs> Listen, I don't know about you three, but I get, my inbox is full of people from the Democratic Party asking for money. If I go into, I've created rules where if I get an email from such and such campaign, it goes directly into my trash. The only two exceptions are emails I received from uh, Congressman George McGovern and State Senator. Jim McGovern. Jim McGovern. Who did I say? George. Who was the senator? You weren't too far off. Okay. Okay. They were friends. Yeah. And este, Joe Comerford. Okay. And so, of so, course, the people in Holyoke, if they ever send me emails, I, of course, I would, you know, last emails, I would read them. We have Senator, State Senator John Vilas and State Rep Pat Duffy over in Holyoke. Okay. The point being that every day almost, I get a text on my phone saying, Natalia, it's Nancy Pelosi. Or I get an email from Val Deming, um, within two points of Marco Rubio, or from I don't know who else, somebody Fetterman, or somebody this and somebody that. This is why the Democrats are going to lose, because Democrats, all they do is ask for money. They don't say where the money's going to go. They're so condescending. They don't even say, listen, the reason that I'm trying to raise $10,000 this week is because I'm trying to open offices in this county and that county, and I need to hire 
five people full time with benefits for that. No, they don't tell us that. It's just send money, send money. So when you look at my trash page in my Gmail account, what you see are 25 deleted requests for money from different Democrats, most of whom I don't even know. How in the world are we ever going to win a majority this November when we're so out of touch with people, so out of touch with people and our concerns? I mean, it's why do I, it's, it's, it's so out of touch. And then asking me, me, don't be asking me for money. Do something. You, I already gave you money. I've been giving you money for most of the 2000s. How about you actually do something instead of lose elections? Well, Natalia, you're, you're doing a pitch for Movement Voter Project and Swing Left, both of which say exactly the same thing. Movement Voter Project says don't give money to candidates. Give it to grassroots organizations who are working on getting out the vote up and down the ballot. And Swing Left says don't give money to any candidates until after they've won a primary, and we vetted them and tell you they're the right people to give money to. But you're not the first person to recognize this. But you all, you, you have a delete button. You seem to be using it. Um, so put your energy into giving money to the people who know how to move, use the money. I don't have any more money, and I don't want Swing Left telling me who to give money to. And I don't know who they are. I don't know who, you know, who are the people who are vetting. Maybe I, I hate them all. For all I know, maybe I think they're a bunch of progressives within quotes. Are you going to crawl, crawl under a rock and do nothing? Some Theodore Roosevelt progressives. You know, <laughs> I don't need that right now. And it's that kind of, uh, what is it, tone deafness of the Democratic Party that has been ruinous to the rest of us, to all of us. Because you got to stop asking us for money. You got to tell us, well, what are you doing exactly besides making, you know, having holding 40 minute press conferences? What are you doing exactly to make this a more perfect union? What are you doing? And people are saying, oh, I'm running for office. And once I get in office, I'm going to do this and that. Okay, do we know that that's not true? We have one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive member of Congress, Jim McGovern. And it's, you know, it's, he's, he's kind of like the Sonia Sotomayor at the Supreme Court and the Elena Kagan. I mean, it must be so frustrating to be Kajani, Sonia, and Elena right now on the Supreme Court where your colleagues are uh, uh, suffer from severe mental illness. Let me ask you this, Natalia, since you are objecting to the emails asking you for money. One thing that we know about Donald Trump and the Republicans is that Donald Trump actually doesn't need big donors because he so harvests small donors and those small donations and turns them into hundreds of millions of dollars. So the Democrats are looking at this saying, well, if the Republicans are raising and Trump's raising hundreds of millions of dollars from small donors, why shouldn't we? And I think that's a decent question. Well, yeah. Why, well, why should we? Why should we do whatever they're doing? I mean, it still doesn't answer the question, what do you do? What do you want to do with our money? How about starting there? Next time Nancy Pelosi think, you know, does her blast email and says she wants money or whoever from wherever wants money, tell me exactly why you want that money. Tell me exactly why you want it. Do not take me for a fool and pretend you know more than I do. Because if you're going to say, I need to raise $10,000 to, to hire two people, then, uh, you know, all right. Is that to hire two people for a month, you know, for six months? And what are we talking about here? We're not part of that conversation. They don't think that we are worthy 
of knowing these details. They just want money. So people like Elizabeth Warren, who I know you guys love so much, and I don't because I think she's a blowhard, she asks for money. And what does she do with the money? And I'm looking at you, Larry, because you're actually on the screen. Larry. Oh, okay. Well, this is radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I, I, half, I half agree with you because a lot of the money that goes to candidates is called sandcastle money, and it washes away. They get to keep it. If they don't win their elections, it goes into their f- for funds. And if they have it, you don't know what they're doing with it. So I agree. That's not, I don't give my money to candidates. I give my money to organizations that are working because I know what they're doing. And those people are getting out the vote because the only way we're going to be able to overcome these problems, particularly on the state level, is to overwhelm them with the vote, get the legislators we need we have in there, and protect the Electoral College as well as the uh, representatives and senators so that we can't, don't have the gerrymandering. So I give my money not to candidates, and I would recommend that nobody else give it to candidates either. And I would say also burn down the Electoral College. That's just a... That doesn't work. Oh, That's a, a wobbly, wobbly stool. What a great, what a great place Brandon to leave Electric this Co- conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Natalia Munoz. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> an arsonist. <laughs> <laughs>